Y'all doing okay? You doing okay? Say woo. You doing okay? Say oh. I don't remember if both of them were supposed to be going. Is it? I clicked record. Good to see y'all. I clicked record. Oh, looking particularly lovely today. Hand me Lovely hands. Okay. So, uh, let me pray. Let me pray for the Word of God, and then we'll get into it. Cool? Father, you are wonderful, you're mighty, you're powerful, God, and you're loving. We thank you so much that you've given us your Word, this living and active document that we get to encounter living God through. Father, I pray that we would surrender our hearts to that truth today. I pray that you would reveal yourself to us and that we'd be responsive to your revelation, God. That we'd walk it out in obedience, say exactly what you want. No more, no less. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, what month is it? February. The month of love. <laughs> um, so, let me get my notes over here. Uh, some of you are probably really excited about Valentine's Day, like Ryan. I know that Ryan is very excited. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan and Kesslin are probably going to have a nice date, right? <laughs> That's right, he has a girlfriend. He doesn't like to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Ryan. Ryan can handle it. He's got those big, strong shoulders. He can handle and make them fun. Some of you are not as excited for Valentine's Day as Ryan is. Um, I remember the first official date with my lady. Between the first official date we went on, it might have been Valentine's Day. I don't remember that. Probably should. We were never talking about last night. We were like, I don't know if it was Valentine's Day or not, but it was definitely, we, we were newly dating. And uh, I used my hard earned money from Gordon Holzer's workplace job that I had. And took Julie to a fancy place. It was fancy for us because I never, I never went to fancy restaurants. Yeah, I never went to restaurants. So, fancy for us. Oh, steak and ale. Yeah, but I also. Uh, just across the border in Indiana. Which one do I? We had the steak and I think I just do this one. I don't know where I was. I was only 17. Julie was 16. Okay. Sorry, That's the only question. In love. It's one of um, And this place was really just for us because they had like these big chairs, like the kind that you see the guy sitting in in a fireplace with the pipes, like that kind of armchair they have. And I still remember the table we sat at, like kind of on the on the edge of the restaurant. And we had our own little lamp on the table. It's really fancy. They brought us out a fresh baked, our own miniature fresh baked loaf of bread with our own butter. I felt so grown. Yeah, it was fantastic. Um, but man, what a blessing it is when God gives you love, gives you romance. Um, and that's usually what we think of when we think of love. And I felt God leading us to talk about talk about love today. Um, but I was also really kind of praying the rest of it because the month of February, more importantly than Valentine's Day, is Black History Month. It has something that Racial re reconciliation in the H2O is something that's really important to who we are. And so I kind of wrestled in prayer, like, God, man, we haven't really highlighted racial justice and reconciliation yet this year on a Sunday. And is this what, you know, do we need to take this opportunity in February to do that? 
But I really felt like God was, was leading us to, to, to discuss the topic of love today because love is one of the most misunderstood words or topics in our world, probably, right? And I think it always has been. And because of that, I think it's good for us to discover what God's definition of love is. So I want to ask this question together today. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. No more. discussed in a C.S. Lewis book called The Four Loves, and I've heard the, the other three, but this first one I never heard until I read this book by C.S. Lewis called The Four Loves, and the first one, first Greek word I want to talk about that we translate love in English is called storge. So the Greek language is much more precise than English. Um, we say love, and we mean all kinds of different stuff. In Greek, they say these four different words describing different kinds of love and affection. So storge is the first one, and storge is like the kind of love you experience in a family. For your family relationships, it's a familiar love, not just for people, but for things that you just, that you grow to love and appreciate and have affection for because they're familiar. So it's like, it's not only the love that your parents have for you, uh, not only the love that you have for your parents and your siblings, not only the love that Julie and I have for our kids, but it's also like, just you grow to appreciate something because it just makes you feel nostalgic. So like the love that a dog shows where its master, C.S. Lewis describes as storge. Um, the way I love ice cream and pizza and football would be storge. So you love something because you feel affection, comfort, and nostalgia when you think about it. So this love is primarily a feeling. Make sense? Storge. The next one is eros. We derive some English words from the Greek word eros that I won't say right now. But eros is romance. So and this is the kind of love that Valentine's Day is devoted to worshiping. I mean, celebrating. <laughs> um, it's what we typically think of when we hear the word love. And this also, like storge, is primarily a feeling, right? You feel affection and you feel this in love feeling when you're around another person. Uh, you get the warm fuzzies and you feel disoriented and you pass out and you vomit because you love this person so much. <laughs> I shouldn't stray from my notes, can That's what happens. <laughs> um, it, but it's a beautiful thing, right? Eros is wonderful. And, and when God sanctifies and purifies, it can be great, right? And this also is primarily a feeling. And so the first two words used for love are not in the New Testament, but these following two words are in the New Testament. And the, the next one is phileo. And the New Testament uses the word phileo. And phileo means friendship or brotherly love. Um, so you, you probably heard the, the, the city Philadelphia 
uh, Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. Um, so it's also friendship and camaraderie, and it, it too is pretty much a feeling. Um, but then the last form of love, this is the, the word that love, that the New Testament uses most for love, and it is agape. Everybody say agape. agape. Where's Neon? Hey, am I saying it right? What? You don't like my accent. C.S. Lewis says, C.S. Lewis says, agape. But I disagree. The accent, though, isn't it? Like the accent is in Greek is already out. So, wait, no, I'll be saying Not the first. The guy. And it's Koine. It's ancient Greek, not contemporary spoken Greek. So, Brie, even though she's part Cypriot, she would not speak the kind of Greek that's in New Testament. Right, right, right Brie? Right. Did I say that publicly yet? It has been Facebook revealed yet? Brie just got her 23 and me results to cheat. She's 1% Cyprus. She got this in her blood. So, agape. Um, agape is the chief of the loves. This is like the the head honcho love. And this is Christ-like love. The New Testament, most of the time when, when you see the word love in the New Testament, this is agape. It's self-sacrificial love. And I like this definition. The willingness to sacrifice to suffer for another person. And this is a choice. This is not a feeling. A lot of times when we think of love, we think of feeling, right? And the other three are primarily feelings. But this one, there's really no feeling involved. There can be feeling along with agape, but agape itself is not feeling. Agape is choice. It's the willingness to sacrifice for another person, the willingness to suffer for another person. John 15, verse 13, Jesus said this to his disciples, Greater love, agape, has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So this verse mentions the word friends, and you might be thinking, wait, we're not talking about phileo anymore. I thought phileo was friendship love. Um, but that's because agape is the love that can and should encompass and influence and direct all the other loves. So the other loves, storge, eros, phileo, can all happen simultaneously with agape. And agape should influence and direct and govern those loves. It is the one that the other four, the other three must exist within. And true agape love is the only of the four loves that cannot be twisted. Because when agape is twisted, then it's no longer agape. It becomes something else. or something's added to it that perverts it. But agape itself cannot be twisted. So, for example, when the family member of an addict sacrificially loves their addict's family member with agape, sometimes they can begin to enable their behavior. And agape might still exist towards that person, but it's not agape that's causing the enabling. Does that make sense? Because that's not what's best for the addict. And agape does what's best for the other person. Right? So there can be things added, so they might feel agape and express agape to that person while they're also enabling this behavior, but the enabling part is not the agape part. Right? Does that make sense? So when we allow agape love to control the other loves in our lives, the other loves find their proper and healthy function. And this also guards us from the other loves becoming twisted and destructive. Agape should be the primary definition of love. When we think of love, 
I pray that the first thing that comes to our minds would be the willingness to sacrifice for another person. And it's a good working definition of love, of agape self-sacrificial love. So whether we're saying I love you to a family member, a friend, a spouse, we should be saying in our heart, I am willing to sacrifice for you. And when somebody says I love you to you, I want you to think, is this person really willing to sacrifice for me? Or are they just saying that they feel really strong for me? Because if some knight in shining armor tries to come and tell you, ladies, I love you, but he's not willing to sacrifice for you, then run. <laughs> Kick him and then run. <laughs> Kick him and then gouge his eyes and run. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll tell, make sure Lily hears this soon. <laughs> you're, what you're saying when you say I love you should be, I am willing to put your best interest ahead of my own. And if that's not the intention of our hearts, then maybe we shouldn't say I love you, right? And so I want to talk about how each of the three loves goes awry when removed from the umbrella in the context of agape love. Cool? You all with me? So I have this working theory that the greater the potential a thing has for good in the world means that it is also more destructive when it is twisted by the enemy and used for evil. You look at some of the most powerful things we see in the world, music, when it's twisted and used for evil, it can be really destructive, right? I think Elliot's probably witnessed music being used for evil at times, right, Elliot? Um, sex is, is extremely powerful when it's twisted and used for evil, it's destructive. Money, medicine, people turn it in, you know, abuse medicine, uh, power, leadership, and influence can be used for great good. It can also be used for great evil. And love is one of the most powerful expressions of God's character in the world. And it has immeasurable potential to be used for good. But when it's twisted, it becomes more destructive than anything else I can think of. I can't think of anything that can be more destructive if the enemy gets to hand on than love. Any love that strays from the context of agape love becomes distorted. And so here's, here's how. Storge, familiar in the family kind of love, is incredibly powerful. The love that parents have for a child makes you feel like your heart is going to explode. Like the moment, I mean, not even before birth, you're like, I would die for this kid. I never even met this kid, but I would die for this kid. Storge love can be powerful. And it can be combined with agape, which leads to the self-sacrificial part. So you have this extremely strong feeling combined with this desire to sacrifice for this kid. Your love for your parents or your siblings or your children or your family pet can be extremely meaningful, right? But when storge strays from agape, it becomes dysfunctional, codependent, and idolatrous. Years ago, Julie and I were at a Chi Alpha training with some other Chi Alpha missionaries, and we were talking to a young Chi Alpha couple. And they were, I think they were getting ready to maybe start to try to have kids. And so they asked us just kind of like randomly in a conversation, they're like, so what's one you know, piece of advice you can give us for parenting? And I was not ready for this, but the first thing that popped in my mind was, don't worship your kids. And they were like, whoa, <laughs> that's the one piece of advice you can give us? And I was like, yeah, and we were, we were just talking for a little bit, and I was like, yeah, little kids are great, but they make terrible gods. <laughs> that's true for anybody, right? You all are great, but you make terrible gods. Whether you're worshiping yourselves or somebody else is worshiping, all of us need to direct our worship to Jesus alone, right? And I think a lot of parents do worship their kids. I think this is kind of a cultural trend. 
Um, Julie and I, we love our kids tons. We love you guys. But you make a terrible guy, Joel. You would. If you're not, that you would. But we want to keep our love for our kids, the story that we feel in the context of agape love for them as well. And agape says that it's not good for kids to rule their parents' universe or anybody else's universe, right? Our kids need to see that God has called us to, the, to things other than them. And they know that our kids know that you're our top priority, don't you guys? Apart from God in our marriage, you are our top priority. <laughs> As a couple, you are our top priority other than God. But they also know that they're not our only priority, right? And it's important for a person to understand that I am not this person's only priority in life. Parents eventually need to let their kids go and let them know, I will always love you. I wasn't planning on seeing you, so you gotta go to the election. Whitney. Whitney just does it, right? Yeah. Just moves your soul. Whitney Houston? Some of you are like, who's Whitney Houston, man? Don't even. I'm gonna start. You gotta start fighting now. Who's Whitney Houston? You guys are making me mad. And you didn't even say it. Just thought. Love for familiar things can really flirt with the line of idolatry. We can find comfort, security, and happiness in family, money, food, entertainment, etc., but they can battle for lordship in our hearts if we don't keep them under a God. Sound good? Cool. Let's move to Eros. I want to talk about romantic love and what happens when that strays from agape. Romantic love, like I said before, it's indescribably powerful and beautiful when it remains within agape. And God uses it to do so much good through us and reveal who he is through us. And the Bible uses the, the marriage relationship of, of humans to describe God's love for his church, right? But when Eros strays from agape, and become, it becomes possessive, it becomes jealous, perverse, and wounding. And romance gone wrong is incredibly hurtful. After experiencing romance and losing it, it can wound in ways that are irreversible outside of the miraculous healing of Christ. People who have been wounded by arrows can't be healed unless Jesus heals them, but Jesus can't heal them, right? And arrows is, is weird because it, it can also become idolatrous. I might be getting ahead of myself with this. Um, when it's not governed by agape, it can become idolatrous too. It can become a thing of worship where you either worship a person that you feel arrows for, or you just worship the idea of arrows. And whatever person happens to be there is filling the, that place of worship at that moment, right? I think women uh, will tend to worship the, the, the idea of eros or romance more than men might. So they worship kind of the, the, the emotional side. Men would maybe men tend more towards worshiping the sexual side of eros. Both are idols, right? But after experiencing romance and losing it, it man, it just it hurts. It hurts really bad. It can, it can feel like a, a part of you is being ripped away. It can hurt so bad, it may even cause you to wonder, do you believe in life after love? You believe in life after love. Where am I back in 
That's a share song. Sunny and Cher, but after she and went weird, then <laughs> she made that song. <laughs> so now we play it in church. <laughs> okay, so like I said, arrows frequently can turn into worship, which is really, really bad, really harmful and destructive. Like that stupid, we're talking about a lot of pop songs. There's this stupid John Legend song, All of Me. If anybody likes that song, don't you tell me you like that song. It's even worse than not knowing who Whitney Houston is. Man, That's right. Okay, sorry. <clears throat> but man, every time I hear that dumb song, I think that's a worship song. That is a worship song to a woman. And a lot of our modern worship songs are like that, right? Or not. A lot of our modern romantic songs are worship songs to a person. And if any of you hear that song, that John Legend song, playing at a wedding reception. I want you to run and unplug the sound system and call down fire from heaven to destroy people like Elijah. That would be the appropriate righteous response. So I want to talk a little bit about, in, in, in Conquer series that us men go through, um, it talks about things called monogamy hormones. So when you have a sexual interaction with another person, or even with an image or a fantasy, in a woman's brain, a hormone is released called oxytocin. And in a, a man's brain releases a hormone called vasopressin. You can write those down if you want, I don't care. But a little bit of oxytocin is also released in a man's brain. And these hormones cause you to bond with the person or thing you're interacting with. You're attaching your soul to that person or thing. Have any of you ever heard the term soul tie? We use this term sometimes when we're talking about when you have a, an, an eros, a romantic relationship with another person and have a sexual interaction with that person and your souls are bonded in some form, right? And in a healthy marriage between a man and a woman, that's a wonderful thing. The two shall become one flesh. That's how God designed our brains to work, right? God designed our brains in a way to bond us to our spouses and they're called monogamy hormones because they draw you back to that person that you had that experience with. And that's, that's how it's supposed to work. I've known people who have given their virginity to another person and have gone completely bonkers after the person breaks up with them or cheats on them. Have y'all ever witnessed that happening before? I've seen news stories of a, of a, of a young man who, whose girlfriend breaks up with him and he goes crazy and shoots her or shoots her and her new boyfriend or whatever. And I, I watch those stories and I'm like, man, I don't know this kid. But I wonder if he bonded his soul to this girl, and then that was ripped away and he lost it, right? And when you think about how our brain, God designed our brains, it makes sense that we would lose our minds when that happened because God, that was not what was supposed to happen. But again, God can redeem it. God can heal it. And if you've experienced that, or someone you know has experienced that, um, God can heal it and bring restoration to that. People who bond and detach and bond and detach and bond and detach are deadening parts of their hearts that they will never be able to get back, again, apart from the healing power of Christ. These people, they're searing their ability to bond emotionally. And the more we sear our consciences with things that are outside of God's design, the more we need to increase the intensity to feel the same, to feel the same level of enjoyment or attachment. 
And I don't mean only sexually either, I'm talking emotionally as well. We can no longer bond effectively emotionally. Research shows this stuff. It numbs our emotions so that we don't even feel very strongly for people that we're supposed to feel strongly for, for our spouses and for our children. And this is serious and scary, but God can heal it. God can heal it. There's hope. It's serious and scary. That's one of the things when I started getting involved in Pure Desire Ministries, I felt sobered and like, this is serious, but I also felt hope because they're like, your brain has been messed up, but God can heal it, right? I want to talk about phileo as well and what happens when phileo gets twisted. So phileo, brotherly love or friendship, is also wonderful and meaningful. And God uses it to greatly enrich our lives, to draw us to himself, to make us more like Jesus, right? to have godly friendships, reveals Christ to us and challenges us to not be selfish and to love others like we want to be loved. C.S. Lewis, in the book, The Four Loves, um, he says that many people don't even use the word love in reference to friendship anymore. And he wrote this like 16 years ago or something. But he, he, he was ahead of his time. He, he saw it even happen back then. That If you use love in regards to friendship, um, you just, you would be out of the ordinary. And you might even be wondering right now, my friends are, are just my friends. What's love got to do with it? I don't know the rest of the song, I'm not, I'm not sure if I feel comfortable with it. No one knows the rest of that song. So C.S. Lewis, in talking about Phileo, he actually says that anyone who speaks about friendship with any seriousness is likely to be accused of homosexuality. I don't know if you've noticed that or not, but, but take Lord of the Rings, for example. When you take Frodo and Sam, the friendship that they have with each other. Any Lord of the Rings fans? Okay, I have to have C.S. Lewis and Lord of the Rings in like every sermon, so I got both. Contemporary interpreters have read the way Tolkien describes the deep friendship and loyalty that Frodo and Sam shared. And these interpreters conclude that Tolkien must have been hinting at a romantic homosexual relationship that they shared. Because they can't conceive of two men who would love each other like this in a non-sexual way, in a non-romantic way. Man, they just they love each other. They're friends. I love, man, I get choked up when I, when I read The Lord of the Rings and, and uh, Sam is talking about his loyalty to Frodo. Chokes me up, guys. Um, and it makes me sad for the people who, who interpret it that way because it, it shows me that, man, have they ever really had a deep, loving, non-sexual relationship with the same gender. This is, this is a tragic thing, right? And God loves them, and he wants them to have healthy love and friendships. And I personally, I believe, I'm not an expert, but this is just a theory that I have, I, I believe that a male needs to learn to love another male in a non-romantic way before he can ever learn to truly love a woman in a romantic way. I think it's a really important part of our development, and vice versa for females. And sometimes I think People who struggle with homosexual temptation, sometimes maybe they never learned to do this. First with their parents and their siblings and, and second with, with friends. All of us, we need deep, meaningful, non-sexual loving relationships with people of the same gender and the opposite gender. We need brothers and sisters in the faith, right? 
King Solomon said in Proverbs 18, 24, there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. That's, that's, that's love. You know, a friend that sticks closer than a brother. But when phileo strays from agape, it produces an unhealthy sort of loyalty in which you support each other in your sin. You contribute to one another's destruction. Some of you have experienced this as well. You might say things like, I'll support you no matter what you do, man. Right? And maybe that sounds nice on the surface. But to support someone when they're making destructive decisions is not love. The hunger for phileo is so strong it drives some people to seek it in potentially dangerous places. Harmful places like gangs, fraternities, bars, etc. All fraternities are not bad, but some people seek bad kinds of friendship there. They find this kind of acceptance. They're like, man, you just... You just destroy your life, and man, I love you. But love doesn't doesn't help somebody destroy their life or, or, or be complicit in someone destroying their life, right? All right, so I want to take the last few minutes together today and talk about the biblical definition of love. We've already talked about it a little bit, the willingness to sacrifice, but I want to look at three scriptures that help us kind of flesh out this biblical definition of love. So what is love? Baby, don't hurt. <laughs> don't play it this time. <laughs> okay. First John 4 8. You can look that up. I think I also have it up on the screen. There we go. A few quick hitters here. First John 4 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. This is really famous. God is love. And we hear people quote this a lot. Even people who don't know, know God will say God is love to justify some sort of feeling or whatever, right? And I think this verse can be mis- easily misunderstood. And we hear that frequently in our culture. People say love is love, right? But what they don't understand is love is not a God thing, right? Um, not the love that we think of, at least. The kind of love that's in our minds isn't always true love. So people would argue, they say love is love, and so if God is love, then I can love whomever I want, and God is okay with it. Or I can love however I want, and God is okay with it, because love is love, and I feel stronger, right? But guess what Greek word for love is used in this verse, when it says God is love? And you guys can guess it, bro. Agape. Yeah. It doesn't say God is storge, God is eros, God is phileos, God is agape. This self-sacrificial choice. Again, not a feeling. So this does not mean that whatever, wherever we find romance, we find God. Right? It also doesn't mean wherever we find God, we find romance. The choice is to sacrifice yourself for the best interest of another person. That's what reflects God's character. And that's why it's so important to define love. Because real love does what is best for the other person. So if, if certain expressions of affection that you might feel are outside of God's design for the other person, best interest for the other person, then it will be best for that person that you feel affection for, for you not to express that affection. Does that make sense? It would not be loving towards that person to express that kind of affection. All right, the second one, second verse, Romans 5.8. In Romans 5.8 it says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
God shows his love. This is how God shows love. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Love drove God the Father and God the Son to make the ultimate sacrifice for you. He demonstrated that true love is a willingness to sacrifice for another person, right? And then the last scripture I want to look at, 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7. Gotta look at this one. Gotta look at the love chapter. We're talking about love. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes. And this is what I want you to think about when you're thinking about, does this person love me? Or do I love this person? Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The human relationship on earth that combines all four of these loves in the best, most complete way, guess what it is? Marriage. You get that? Marriage is the human relationship on earth that combines all four of these loves in the most complete way. Not saying that if you never get married, God doesn't call everybody to get married. Doesn't mean that you can never experience all four of these loves. I guess arrows probably. Probably shouldn't, right? But marriage combines all four of these loves in the most complete human way. And when you're looking for a spouse, don't look for someone with whom you feel great chemistry. Okay? I've had people say to me, man, I'm not really sure about this person's commitment to Christ, but man, we have such great chemistry. I'm like, what the heck does that mean? <laughs> like, or we feel or we feel so strongly for each other. Yes, attraction may initially draw you to each other. That's good. But attraction won't keep you with each other. Attraction, no matter how strong it is, it will not keep you with each other. It will not keep you faithful to each other. Because no, no feeling can affect your choice. The, the, the choice of agape has to happen for marriage commitment to work. And attraction is not an indication that God wants you to be together. When a married person feels attraction to somebody other than their spouse, they have to understand that love's not a feeling, it's a choice. And they choose to submit their feelings to the agape love of Christ, which knows what's best for every person involved in this, in this situation, right? And some people say, oh, I can't control who I love. Have you heard that before? You can't control who I love. You absolutely can control who you love if it's a choice, right? You might not have chosen to notice that person you feel attraction towards, but you can surely choose who you love because love is not a thing. Amen? Amen? That's good preaching, good. John Revere would say. <laughs> and as you, continue, as you continually choose love, then your feelings come into alignment with that, and they reinforce the love you've chosen. Your feelings can grow over time. People have never met each other, and the, 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 uh, engaged, the marriage was arranged, and they meet each other the first time on their wedding day, they may have zero attraction towards each other. Zero feelings towards each other. It might, the actual feelings that they have might be fear and insecurity and all of these negative feelings, only negative maybe. But marriages like that have worked a lot of times, millions of times throughout history. 
Because people make a choice to commit, and then feelings can follow that, right? They can grow to have a romance in Eros if they make the choice to love. That, that makes sense? Yeah. Amen? Amen. 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 I love you, I mean, I'm willing to sacrifice for so listen, I, I want to a couple last things and then we'll close. When you're looking for a spouse, unless you found one already, don't look for one. <laughs> when you're looking for a spouse, I want you to look for somebody who displays these biblical qualities of love. Patience, kindness, etc. The things listed in First Corinthians 13 and the others. And somebody who helps you better exhibit them as well. Right? And seek to display those qualities towards the other person. I encourage you to watch how that person treats his or her family. Because how, how he treats his mother is probably going to be how he treats you. <laughs> how, how she treats her father, if she honors her father, she'll probably honor you as well. That's her husband. And love doesn't insist on its own way, it says in 1 Corinthians 13. So I encourage you, find somebody who is willing to delay their sexual gratification for your benefit. I always tell dating couples or engaged couples, if you are struggling with lust together as a couple before marriage, you will struggle with lust after marriage as well. But it won't be towards each other because lust is not loving and the devil does not want you to, to desire each other. So you will find a way to lust, but it will not be towards each other. If someone is willing to delay their sexual gratification by not lusting towards you, then that's a good indication that they will do the same after marriage, right? I want to read you a story as we close. Let's see if I can do this. This is a this is a this is a tough one. I've only read this story about twenty times, and so maybe we can get there. This is a book, Saving a Marriage Before It Starts. This is like the '90s publication of it. Very nice, right? You're gonna like this picture of Les and Leslie. They have the same name, Les and Leslie Perry. <laughs> and this is them in the 90s. Okay. Yeah, really clean. The new version, they look a little bit, you know, less like that. <laughs> Sorry, Les and Leslie. They're actually really, they have a lot of great marriage stuff now. So the, here's a story. Uh, Julie and I take people through this book when we do premarital counseling. So if anyone does premarital counseling with us, something to look forward to. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> Robert Sidney Quilkin is a husband who is known for relying on God's faithfulness. He was a Christian college president, and his wife, Muriel, was the host of a successful radio program when Muriel began to experience memory failure. The medical diagnosis turned their 42-year marriage inside out. Muriel had Alzheimer's. It did not seem painful to her, said Robertson. But it was a slow dying for me to watch the creative, articulate person I knew and loved gradually dimming out. Robertson approached his college board of trustees and asked them to begin the search for a successor, telling them that when the day came that Muriel needed him full time, she would have him. Because Robertson still had eight years to go before retirement, his friends urged him to arrange for the institutionalization of Muriel. She will become accustomed to her new environment quickly, they said. But would she? Robertson asked himself. Would anyone love her at all, let alone love her as I do? 
Muriel could not speak in sentences, only words. And often words that made little sense. But she could say one sentence, and she said it often. I love you. The college board arranged for a companion to stay with Muriel so Dr. McQuilkin could go daily to his office. And during that time, it became increasingly difficult to keep Muriel at home. When Robertson left, she would take out after him. The walk to the college, who is One time I was trying to read the story to Julie. We're just reading it out loud, getting ready for premarital counseling, and I stopped, and she's like, it's wrong. I can't do it. The walk to the college was a mile round trip from the house, and Muriel would make the trip as many as 10 times a day. Sometimes at night, said Robertson. Sometimes at night, when I helped her undress, I found bloody feet. When I told our family doctor, he choked up and simply said, such love. In 1990, believing that being faithful to Muriel in sickness and in health was a matter of integrity, Robertson McQuilkin resigned his presidency to take care of his wife full-time. Daily I discern new manifestations of the kind of person she is, he has said. I also see manifestations of God's love, the God I long to love more fully. That's what, that's what love should do. Right? Draw us into this desire to see God's love experience. Several years have passed since Robertson's resignation, and Muriel has steadily declined so that now she rarely speaks. She sits most of the time. While he writes that she is contented and often bubbles with laughter. She, seem, she seems still to have affection for me, said Robertson. What more could I ask? I have a home full of love and laughter. Many couples with their wits about them don't have that. Muriel is very lovable, more dear to me now than ever. And when she reaches out to me in the night hours, or smiles contentedly and lovingly as she awakes, I thank the Lord for his grace to us and ask to let me, to let me keep her. I ask to let me keep her. Dang, that's, that's a picture of God's faithfulness, right? The love that God has for you, love that you can produce in our lives. You guys are good. <laughs> this is nice, guys. Just go Can someone come hug me? You guys leave me up here by myself. You're looking at each other. You might have noticed that I said that the human relationship that most encompasses all four kinds of love is marriage. But there's another relationship that expresses all four kinds of love anymore. Right? You guys are smart. You guys have you've heard this throughout the sermon. But the story I read is a picture of God's love for another person. The kind of love that we should give to and seek from others. But God looked at us and he saw the human race declining and prepared himself. Just like, just like Dr. McPherkin did. He prepared himself to leave heaven and give up his throne when the time came. God's love towards us is so much greater than any human being's love for another person in all four ways. Colossians 1:18 says that he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And preeminent means greatest or surpassing all others. In everything, Jesus is preeminent, which means that he is the best at everything good. <laughs> the best at everything good. Christ is preeminent in everything. In Storge, God is the greatest. 
No one could ever feel the kind of affection for you that your Heavenly Father could feel. And Christ is the greatest brother. In Eros, he is the greatest lover, the husband of the church. No romantic relationship could compare to the passion that God has for you. His feelings of love towards you are stronger than any lover's feelings could ever be. And if that sounds weird to you, then you probably haven't experienced it in the way that you want you to. In Philetto, he is the greatest friend. God feels more loyalty towards you and he loves being around you more than any friend. Even though he knows you completely and he knows all your faults, unlike your friends. In Agape, God made the greatest sacrifice. No one has suffered more for your well-being. That's how Jesus loves you. That's how Jesus loves you. Who would not want this kind of love? Right? And if you don't have it, you need it. And you can have it. You can have it today. Let's stand up. We're going to sing. I'm going to sing a song as we close. And some of you might be feeling that. Like, you know, I don't have, I don't experience the God, God's love like that. Maybe you're born, even you're born again. Maybe you're a Christian. And you still feel like I just, I need a revelation of God's love, and I pray, I pray for that for you today. I pray for that for all of us. No matter how much love you feel like you've experienced from the Father, I pray that God will give you a revelation of greater love today. That you would leave here today with this fuller understanding in your soul of God's eternal love for you and all, all kinds of love that you have an experience of God's love for you today. Um, God might be speaking to you about how to love others in your relationships and to teach you to, to subject your feelings to your choice of a godly love. I, I encourage you to do that. I challenge you to make a decision, make that choice today that all of my love will be governed by God. Um, no matter what kind it is. Cool. So as as these guys play and sing, let's sing with them and, and just let God do whatever He wants. If you need if you need prayer, come on now. Come prepare for you. Cool. Love you all. Willing to sacrifice for you. <laughs>